0: Hello and welcome to Serious Vintage. I'm Jeff Mose. I'm Nat Mose, and I'm Josh Chapel. Today we'll be talking about how magic decks work, the creation of a metagame attack deck, and serious food and drink drinks through the holidays. Our first section, how magic decks work, starts with an experience that I had at Gen Con this past year. I was playing blue, black, red, landstill. I ended up bombing out of the main event, and I was playing in the side event. And it was like the second to last round, and I was going up against a guy who really did not like losing to landstill. He was playing Bomberman, and we eventually got to the point late in the game where I just had tremendous card advantage, and I was countering all of his relevant spells. He lost, refused to shake my hand, and immediately started complaining to the guy next to him, saying, Landsteel is the worst deck in Vintage. It's ruining things. Those idiots can play their autopilot deck with five copies of Ancestor Recall, and they can just counter all your spells. And it makes people like me who are trying to play fun, interactive decks just ruins them, and it's ruining the format.
1: I like that, because I bet his Bomberman deck had about as
0: many counterspells as yours did. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding, and he just wants to combo out and play a non-interactive game. Well, I think that's the point, that's why we were going to talk about this a little bit, is that
1: after you won that match, you talked to me about it a little bit, and you told that story, and and I said, well, that's silly, how can you complain about that? Because that's really what all magic decks want to do. All magic decks want to get to a, a game state where you're not interacting with your opponent anymore. Your opponent can't do anything, so it doesn't matter what he's doing. You're essentially goldfishing. I
2: mean, and for a land still, you do get to that point where right. your hand is two mana drains, two force of will, fluster storm, and you're attacking for four every turn with factories.
0: Right. But getting to that point is very
2: difficult. Right,
0: sure. I'm trying to think of a counterpoint. <laughs> like an aggro deck. An aggro deck is playing the game with you. They're just swinging through it. The aggro deck just hopes you're not going to interact with them at all. They're starting from the
1: perspective that they're going to win before you can put up any sort of relevant defense. If you're looking at something like Jarbelter, which we've talked about um, this podcast before, Belcher hopes that on turn one, you're not going to be interactive. If it gets past turn one or two, Belcher has a much harder time because they can't interact with you, but you're interacting with them. They're hoping that they're going to kill you and make you ultimately not interactive as quickly as possible. That's what any aggro deck
0: would want to do, too. I think that the important thing when talking about this is it comes back to how a lot of people say that shop decks are bad for the format because they prevent you from playing spells, which creates an uninteractive game. But the right. point to make here is that every deck is seeking that, they're right. just doing it in different ways. Sure, right. when you're playing blue decks, they play spells and you counter them, but is that really any more of an interactive game than not being able to play the spells in the first place?
1: Right. If you're not resolving any relevant spells, who cares? You might as well not be playing. <laughs>
0: and then if you're playing dredge, you're just playing a different game entirely.
1: Right. A dredge opponent just negates so many of your spells because none of your spells interact with the graveyard. Like, the only things that are relevant against dredge are the kind of spells that will put together a combo and kill them quickly. Well, game one anyway. Obviously game two and three, you're gonna have, you're probably going to have some sideboard cards that will interact and then you'll have a game of it. But in that case, then you're the one who wants to make them non-interactive with
0: your hate card. Do you think that this philosophy is broadly applicable? Like, do you think that it also applies to Standard, Legacy, the other formats? Yeah, you know, I think it applies in Legacy. It's very noticeable in Vintage because the games establish
1: themselves so much more quickly. Not all the games are over on turn one or anything like that, but because of the moxes, you have more mana in play sooner. So you get to that point where you can do more things like counter more spells or, you know, with mud you have more board affecting permanence in play, that sort of
0: thing. Enact your gameplay.
1: Right. Your ultimate game strategy comes online so much sooner. You know, I think that works in Legacy as well, just because of all of the spells they play are so much more efficient. They don't really have more mana necessarily, but they're playing one and two drops that, you know, are majorly effective. I'm not very familiar with Standard and Modern. But I would think that you'd still want to get to that point of non-interactivity. It would just take a, a longer time. And well, the, the problem with those formats
2: getting to that point is so much more difficult because your card quality is so much lower. Right. You, you don't have the powerful cards like you do in Vintage and Legacy, which is why it's so much more of a thing in Vintage specifically, and Legacy would be next in line. But Modern and
1: Standard, it's kind of almost not because you don't have those cards that
2: do that. Right,
1: and you have to remember that your opponent is trying to do the same thing. And because the spells in Modern and Standard aren't so splashy, you never take a big leap ahead of your opponent, or your opponent never takes a big leap ahead of you. You're sort of paralleling each other, and then one of you will start to pull away, and you'll really be in the control of the game, and that's where that's where essentially it ends. Even though your opponent might not be dead, you've still reduced their ability to interact to nothing. A lot of people say that blue decks are much more interactive because... Both players get to play and resolve spells, but a good blue player will know what to counter. I mean, they're not just going to throw force of wills or mana drains at just anything. They're going to wait until they have a worthwhile target that's either going to be devastating for them or put you so far ahead that they need to stop it. And I think the other thing to realize is that what they're really looking to do is instead of creating a perpetual game state where there's no interaction, which is something that, for example, mud would do by burying you under sphere effects, what they're looking to do is they want one really big turn of non-interaction. And usually that one turn will result in your death or near death, because they'll either, you know, set up time vault key or resolve tinker or resolve tinker and time walk or play tendrils or something like that that ends the game. And that's why against a mud deck, a lot of times a Hurdle's Recall will be really good for the blue deck because they will buy themselves that one turn of freedom where they can just do whatever they want.
0: Yeah, I guess that's true. And that's also what creates that illusion of interactivity because the blue player is waiting for that turn right. to make the move. So you right. think that you're in the game, but you're allowed to be thrown out of the position of interactivity.
1: Right. You can be doing lots of things, but none of them are actually relevant to what the blue player is doing. Yeah. So it's, yeah. I mean, you can resolve all the tarmagogues you want, but if you're just attacking for five every turn, it will give them enough time to win. Coming off of the previous discussion, we're looking at a deck like Wizards, which is a deck that the three of us have played in a few tournaments. What that deck really tries to do is it interacts with its opponent sort of like Mud does, just to shut off their reach to victory. So all we're looking at, you can see the deck list in the post that goes along with this article.
2: Where Wizards came from is there was a deck from a European tournament, and they seem to have a fair amount of... Vintage Tournament's a much healthier metagame than the United States. But there was a list that had a bunch of wizards, and all the creatures had abilities that interacted with the opponent to stop from doing things, draw you cards, just a bunch of value creatures, really. And then that's kind of where we took it.
1: We started with a deck by Omar Nieto. The creatures that he used originally were 4 Dark Confidant, 4 Meddling Mage, 4 Kasali Pride Mage, and 4 Void Mage Prodigy. This was back in February 2011. We sort of started with that and ended up cutting a color from it. We cut the Kasali Pride Mages. Well, we cut the Kasali Pride Mages as soon as Leon and Relic Order was printed because Leon and Relic Order had the added ability that it could also deal with Tinker Targets rather than just blowing up artifacts.
2: Relic Order, to me, is the strongest card in the deck.
1: I agree. And actually, what we ended up with was a blue-white-black Ethervile Vile Fish list that's pretty similar to what Paul Niccolo had been playing four to six years ago with some updated creatures, and but basically the same basic strategy. And the idea was that you could make it so that against, especially a blue deck, that your opponent just couldn't resolve anything relevant. Looking at a blue deck with the idea that their goal is to play either Tinker into Time Vault or Lightsteel Colossus, or to have a big Yogg-Moss Will turn and win with one of those answers. It's pretty easy to shut them off. They really only have a couple of paths to victory, and it's not too challenging to shut them off. Uh, Meddling Mage can obviously name either Tinker or Yawgmoth's Will, and then we had Phyrexian Revoker, which shuts down Time Vault. It also shuts down Jace. And and the deck also is interesting because it has, like, the
2: hardest counterspell with Void Mage Prodigy. Yeah, Void Uh, Mage Prodigy is fantastic on the board. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I mean, it just wins the counterspell war you know, with the exception of
0: what Stifle, Trickbind, and Void Slime. Yeah, you really have to work pretty hard to stop the Void Mage activation. Especially considering the Stifle has fallen so far out of favor these days with so many (laughs) other options. Right. And, you know, really, with Void Mage in play, you can
1: let your opponent draw as many cards as they want because only the spells that are going to kill you do you need to worry about. Having Void Mage Prodigy and things like Dark Confidant and Meddling Mage and Curse Catcher you can counter multiple spells in a turn if you have enough mana. I mean, if you have four mana, you can counter two spells pretty much uncounterably.
2: It's also good, you know, when the game starts going long and kind of in danger of dying in a Dark Confidant, you're pretty happy
1: to see him go. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And the other big thing was that all of these creatures could be played off of Aether Vile, which meant that well, at the time we built the deck, that your opponent's mana drains were useless because they couldn't A, trade one for one, and wouldn't gain any mana from them, because they can't counter the ether Vial activations. And that also gave you the benefit of being able to play things like Leon Relic Order at instant speed, so if your opponent tinkered and time-locked, you can still remove their light tilt losses. The ether Vial really makes it so your opponent can't interact on the stack with you.
0: At what point, because I remember we all played it at 2011 Gen Con, uh-huh. and then... We sort of stopped playing it. So what in the metagame changed that made Wizards no longer I remember, the appropriate metagame deck?
2: So I was playing I don't know, I had to like win this match and maybe another match to make top eight and I was playing against Steven Benidian and he was playing Mundillion clicks and Trigon Predator. Trigon Predator is just like I mean the deck just doesn't beat Trigon Predator. Yeah, the it problem blocks all of your dudes.
1: The problem was that more people were playing creatures. You ended up seeing more things like Trigon Predator and Snapcaster Mage was a big one. And it wasn't that Snapcaster Mage beat you on its own, but because they were playing Snapcaster Mage, they were also playing more Tarmoglyphs, more Trigon Predators. And eventually Rug Delver got developed, which... Well, actually, eventually Delver itself got printed, which pretty much single-handedly stopped the wizard's deck because it's a a 3-2 flyer that flies over all of your attackers. Basically, if they resolve with Delver, they can race you.
2: That 2011 Gen Con was also before people actually started playing Goif a lot more. People really weren't playing Tarmogoyf yeah. at the point.
0: Yeah, the right. only people who were playing Tarmogoyf were other fish players. And I know that at that tournament, I went up against several fish players and I got demolished by them because <laughs> all of their dudes were bigger than my dudes. Kasali, Tarmogoyf, all of these things are extremely difficult to deal with in that list. Right. But I think what we
1: ended up with is that sort of the creature influx is starting to die off. We've also gained a few new tools, especially against Tarmogleth. And I, I think that, you know, Wizards is sort of ready for a comeback. And this is actually heralded by Omar Nieto, again making a top two with Wizards, this time in a 47-person tournament in Spain. His deck is similar to the one he played earlier, although he's playing way more creatures. We'll put this list in the article as well but he's got 23 creatures and he's expanded the
0: list to five colors using cavern of souls yeah i think that cavern of souls i mean when your deck's name is a tribe cavern yep. of souls becomes insane
2: yeah the only problem you run into with cavern of souls is he does play four void mage prodigy and you cannot activate the void mage prodigy with your cavern of souls yeah he also plays three wastelands in a strip mine. So there's eight lands right off the bat
1: that don't activate the Void Mage Prodigy. Right, yeah, actually he's got two, three, four, five, six lands that do activate Void Mage Prodigy when you get down to it.
0: Yeah. It seems oh. like he's looking at Void Mage not necessarily as one of those increments, but it's well, sort of the cap that once that gets online, right. he's safe. Once you have Void Mage in play, like I said, it's, it's pretty much game over for most blue decks.
1: They really have to work to remove that, or they'll end up losing to it. Kind of one of the reasons that we're even having this discussion right now
2: is the printing of Rest in Peace, because right. Wizards had a terrible time dealing with Dredge. It was awful. <laughs> At Gen Con, we just didn't play a Dredge sideboard, or I right. did.
1: Yeah, we were all planning on just losing to Dredge if we faced it, and just hoping to not face it. But Yeah, I played it once, I lost. Right. Yeah, Rest in Peace actually, not only does it give you game against Dredge, but it also gives you a game against Tarmogoyf. Some people have been doing this in Legacy and Modern, where they board in Rest in Peace against Tarmogoyf and instantly turn all of your opponents' Tarmogoyfs into zero-one do nothing.
0: Yeah, I remember yeah. even people playing Relic of Progenitus against Tarmogoyf, and Rest in Peace just seems way better than that. Yeah, yeah. Not to mention that it also shuts off the, the relevant ability on Snapcaster Mage.
2: Yeah. I mean, there are so many fringe things that it does that you don't even think about. You said you were playing a game against Workshops,
1: and Rest in Peace stopped you from getting Strip Locked? Yeah, I was facing down Crucible of Worlds and Strip Mine on turn 2 or 3, and had just enough mana in play to top deck a Rest in Peace, play it, and remove my opponent's graveyard and shut off the rest of his Crucible lock. Also, he was using Bizarre of Baghdad as a draw engine, so he didn't get to do <laughs> his welders either.
2: We did kind of take some liberties here because Omar's list on the mana train, it says that he's playing four rest for the weary in the sideboard. <laughs> so we assumed it meant rest in peace. We're not sure if like we're that bad at magic, he's that good at magic. Dude,
0: he knows the value of gaining eight life.
1: You know, he may have just been playing against a whole bunch of burn decks. There you go. Anyway, looking at Nieto's deck, I think one of the interesting things and something that I think we can learn from is that his sideboard is one Plains, one Scrubland, one Balance, which is kind of interesting, although we're not really sure how he uses that. But he also have four Leyline Line of the Void, four Rest in Peace, and four Serenity. And I think that's really interesting because it shows that he's very confident in his blue matchup with his main deck. And obviously he's got four Cavern of Souls and four ether Vials that already negate all of their counters, so it's like a quarter of their deck is just meaningless against him.
2: Cavern of Souls definitely helped facilitate his five-color creature package.
1: Oh, totally. Oh, sure. For sure. But then the sideboard cards that he's chosen, the four Leyline of the Void and the four Rest in Peace, are the most devastating cards against Dredge, and Serenity would be the most devastating card against any kind of Workshop deck. Like, if those hit play, he's already won the game. I think that Serenity is a really big piece of technology
0: there, especially because he can board out his Ether Vials, or he can board out his Chalices anyway, and bring in the. I think, Serenity. I, I imagine he's probably playing his Ether Vials anyway, and he's saying, "I can slap down Serenity. I lose an Ether Vial. You lose your board. I'm cool right. with that."
1: Everything. Yeah. Same thing with Leyline and Rest in Peace. It's, you know, with those in play, Dredge essentially cannot win against him because he'll be able to either deal with or remove their creatures
0: and just crush them. Yeah, I think he's got a deck built around it, incremental advantages, and he's definitely got his trump cards identified. He's got, like, Void Mage Prodigy for blue in the main, and then he's got the other archetypes covered in the sideboard.
1: Right. Yeah, I agree. The trump cards is a very apt way to put it, because that's exactly what it does. Meddling Mage and Void Mage Prodigy absolutely trump blue decks. Casali, Pride Mage, and Serenity absolutely trump workshop decks. Magus of the Unseen trumps Tinker and Workshops. He's got eight absolute trumps for dredge in the board, along with Wastelands and some other things that will sacrifice, like the Pride mage Sacrifices to resume, uh, remove bridges, things like that.
2: Chalice of the Void is a really powerful card for the deck, too. The one thing that I didn't really necessarily like about his list was the Metal Missteps over days, because mm-hmm. Chalice of the Void is, I usually want to play it at one, because it doesn't really have that much of an
1: effect on me on turn two. Yeah, usually you're going to play your first one at one, or play your first one at zero, and then any one you draw after that is going to be set at one. Because you can play all of your creatures through Aether Vial. It doesn't matter if it's going to counter any of those. Not to mention that you have Cavern of Souls, which also gets
0: through Chalice of the Void. Is he playing um, any one-drops other than Mental Misstep and Ancestral? And Lava Mancer. Oh, Lava Mancer.
1: Yeah, he's got Lava Mancers, Aether Vials, Mental Missteps, mm-hmm. Ancestral. But I guess, the, you know, like, Misstep versus Dazed is so situational anyway that... But... I think it depends on what you're targeting. Yeah, it does. I mean, I've definitely had games where Daze has been terrible, but I've also had games where... I mean, Mental Misstep really doesn't do anything against Shops at all, where Daze can certainly catch them on a Lodestone Golem or metal Metalworker on turn one. Going back to that balance in the
0: sideboard, what do you think he brings that in for? Mirror. Is it the Mirror? Yeah, I, I figure it's got to be other creature decks. I think that right. because Vintage doesn't play a lot of mass removal... Right. You have a lot of vintage players who get away from the idea of overextending yourself. That's so true. you can get a lot of creatures on the board, and if he can just play conservatively for a little bit, drop that right. balance, he can immediately turn that around, capitalize on that. However many for one he just got, and play out his right. creatures to fill that gap. Right. And yeah. a lot of the
2: the European metagame is a lot of their tournaments are sanctioned. Do you know if this was? Uh, I'm sure it was actually. Yeah which sanctioned vintage
1: usually leads to more creature decks. That's true. Right. Yeah, and obviously balance is one of the more effective ways to remove a bunch of creatures or a bunch of lands or a bunch of cards in your opponent's hand or multiples of those, so... I certainly don't have a problem with playing
0: the balance. I just think it's interesting in such a creature-heavy deck. And in the sideboard.
1: Yeah, and in the board.
0: I feel like in order to capitalize on the balance, you have to sort of have it in your opener. Right. Because if you enact your standard game plan and draw the balance... Right. I don't know how effective it's going to be. Right.
2: I don't know if I'm a fan of having no basic lands in the main deck. I don't know if it matters. I mean, I guess the deck runs on so few
1: mana anyway, but right. I really like basic lands. Yeah, it's nice to have one, at least. Especially with Void Mage Prodigy, where you really want to have a basic land. And yeah, because if
2: I have a fetch land, turn one, and I'm playing ether Vial with it, I'm going to get a basic island every time.
1: Right. Yeah, not to mention that Magus the Unseen and Kasali Pride Mage both take mana, too. So does Grimloid It's not like you can be out of mana. Right, it's not like you can be out of mana and still functioning. It's obviously a risk he was really awake. And he does have two lands in the sideboard, which is sort of a lot. But
0: uh, Yeah, the scrub land, I I, I don't know. <laughs> I sort of feel like I'd rather have a second basic than a scrub.
1: Yeah, Right.
0: but I mean, he, if he's looking for his colors,
1: yeah. which is interesting because, I mean, the scrub land doesn't activate Void Mage or... Grim Lava Mancer, or a Magus of the Unseen. But. Right.
2: He's also playing the Sower
0: of Temptation, which is far above the curve that we had. Right. Yeah, but as we were talking about, if you're playing against the blue deck that is utilizing Tinker as its main win condition, right. if you do ramp that Ether Vial up to four... You don't need to ramp Ether Vial up to four, you just need to play Cavern of Souls. Well, there's that too, but if you have Cavern, they can... Tinker and Time Walk, and you, you won't right. get a main phase to cast Sower, but I mean, it's, it's it's the same thing as really in Relic Warder, if you have that uh that Ether Vial ready to just throw the answer in there, they can't do anything about it.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the interesting thing, is that you get to a point where it's just, like I said, they can't do anything relevant, so that goes back to our first topic, where it's they're not interacting with you at all, you're just goldfishing them
0: you're attacking for two or four or six every turn. He's moved beyond Curse Catchers. Are you playing Curse Catchers in your latest build? He actually never had the Curse Catchers, as
1: far as I can tell. His first list didn't have them either, and that was the first thing that I put in there was because I wanted the one drop-off of the Ether Vial.
2: I blame the Curse Catchers entirely on that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I personally like Curse Catcher, and what, you know, what I was realizing is that the list that I played is actually a much more heavy mana denial deck than his is. His is more of a trump card deck, where he's answering specific strategies whereas mine is sort of a general mana denial version where it's got the lean and relic order can take moxes phyrexian revoker shuts off moxes thalia is obviously in there as a sphere effect and then curse catcher and wasteland sort of round things out so what you can end up doing is if you open with a couple of those mana denial effects and can apply some early pressure you can really put your opponent on the ropes pretty quickly Especially if you're, you know, drawing cards with Dark Confidant and you're getting counter spells or if you're play Void Mage Prodigy so that you can counter anything or you shut off an avenue to victory with Meddling Mage, you're really in a pretty good situation. One thing I'd like to say is this, the Wizard's Less that we have is very good at time walking its opponent. Explain how. Well, in the sense that time walking your opponent in the sense that you can take advantage of all these different effects that you're getting every turn. I mean, a lot of the cards will set your opponent back a turn while you're advancing your own game plan, oh, okay. you know, like lead and relic order, denying a mana from your opponent, like wasteland, denying a mana from your opponent while you're still attacking, while you have ether vial up to continue playing cards, you know, charles chalice- poker hitting a box, curse catcher making them basically. Play right. around it, mm-hmm. right? They know about Curse Catcher, but they need to play around it. It's how you can play Tinker with Mox Mox Land on turn one if your opponent has Curse Catcher in play. So you've essentially set them back a turn, even though you might forget ready. to use it. You might. It's true. You know, it, it's been known to happen. <laughs> uh, but then in the you know in the sideboard we're. Because the the main deck strategy is sort of general, and you're just trying to shut off their mana, then the sideboard has more specific answers against those decks. So we actually are going to bring in Stoneforge Mystic against decks with creatures in them. That's been a huge difference.
2: And you're Stoneforging for Batterskull? Yeah, sure. Because that's the only equipment, right?
1: Yeah, actually, I had a uh, Play Umazawa Chite in there a couple times. That's a good card, too. I mean, obviously, that'll help win against creature-based decks. And it, it does give you an increased clock against other things. Because that was in the sideboard of our first build. Yeah, uh, obviously it's <laughs> well reputed as a as a good card.
0: Batterskull so. Skull does that pretty well too, though. I mean, kills a lot of dudes and also has life length, so any right. damage that you take gets nullified.
2: With wizards, is like, you know, a lot of it is you controlling the board, controlling the game state, attacking for two. Right. Batter yeah. Skull definitely helps with that, as far as like getting you back some life that you lost or hitting a little
1: bit harder right i think especially when we're going without the necessarily wizard's theme there's lots of different options of cards you can play i mean i have at least looked at magazine the unseen before josh you like the uh, phantasmal image plan even when you get outside of creatures you're looking at a lot of different options there's actually
0: there's actually one card is stoneforge mystic a wizard no no is it core it's Artificer? A core artifact oh of course that's just what i would expect all right here i found this card i was looking for yeah so what was it net bonds of faith
1: bonds of faith is a card from new phyrexia
0: i am not aware of what uh
1: it's from innistrad oh that's what i meant yeah it's from it's from innistrad you know i think actually it could be played in this deck or a deck similar to it it's an enchantment right creature enchantment plus two one in a white enchanted creature gets plus two plus two as long as it's a human Otherwise, it can't attack or block.
0: Oh yeah, okay, I've seen that played in pauper decks.
1: Yeah, so essentially you either have pacifism for your opponent's Tarmogoyf for Blightsteel Colossus, or Lodestone Golem, or you beef up one of your own dudes and get it out of range of Lightning Bolt, or just increase your clock a little bit. I haven't had the opportunity to uh, play and resolve it yet, though I have had it in decks, <laughs> but I'm excited to try it at some point. I don't know that it would actually be necessarily vintage-worthy, but it's definitely very flexible in a deck that likes flexibility.
2: You blow my mind. Yeah, I know. It's pretty cool, right? We had a discussion
0: yeah. about this earlier, and it sort of runs into into that, which is, what is your least favorite card in the deck that's not mana-producing? Which leads into, what did you remove from the deck in order to put in Bonds of Faith? I mean, I think it was probably something like the
1: Third Days or... Uh, maybe one of the creatures that I had been moving around at the time. Uh, we've sort of been working on our list of wizards for a little while, uh, trying to figure out how to make it work in this metagame. We're pretty close. I mean, it can probably move around a little bit. Perhaps Spawns of Faith is one of those cards. Yeah, probably the third days at the point with Cut. Because Daze is real bad. Right. days is good on turn one and gets sort of progressively worse as you go on. And it's really, like, a lot of the power of days is just your opponent thinking that you could have it. So
2: <laughs> if I play a daze in game one and my
1: opponent sees it, I'm probably going to sideboard them out because
2: they're going to play around. Yeah,
1: they're going to play around it anyway. You might leave one in there just to call their bluff every once in a while. But, but yeah, I think there's room to work in the list. That was sort of what we were working on, was trying to make a deck that beat our metagame, which is sort of workshops and creature decks, as opposed to the East Coast metagame, which is still blue decks and workshops.
0: Would you consider going for the, uh, the Serenity tech? I would. I think that's a pretty good idea. I've actually been thinking about that recently, and I was trying to figure
1: out what the... Because really what I want to bring in against most Workshop decks is just four more lean and Relic Orders, which unfortunately don't exist. <laughs> so, do you bring in the Stuntforge against Workshops? Uh I think you do. I haven't had a chance to test against Workshops with that sideboard configuration yet, but I think that would be... Right now, I mean, that's part of my plan.
0: <laughs> I would think you would do that. Yeah, I think so too. How do you deal anyway. with Oath, given that you're a creature deck and you need to deal with a 1 and a green casting cost enchantment that can come down in turn 1? Best card in the deck. Yeah, lean and Relic Order. Just hide it?
1: Yeah, yeah. lean and Relic Order and uh, Meddling Mage are both really good against Oath. Like you, A lot of times Oath leans pretty heavily on resolving its enchantment, so you're pretty well able to cut them off of it. Void Mage Prodigy is also good here.
0: And then out of the board, we have True Believers. I think that it's notable that Serenity does not work all that well against Oath. You're not going to be able to avoid triggering Oath.
1: I mean, you're going to have a creature in play. So, Mm -hmm. you kind of just have to bite that bullet. So, you need to be able to plan on stopping them from resolving Oath or removing it once it's in play. Mm
2: -hmm. I mean, Wizards is basically a response to a specific metagame. You can kind of Change your creatures in and out depending on what you think you're going to play against. You know, if you, one deck is super popular, maybe four Meddling Mage is awesome, or maybe Grimlock Monster is better in one metagame than a not Magus of the Unseen. So, I mean, that's kind right. of
1: where the deck comes from, is attacking a specific metagame. Yeah, and I think the the three colors that you have, white, uh, well, the three colors that we have, or if you're, you know, going to go the Yato route and play all five colors, uh, you know, I think you, you obviously have a lot of options. And, even in the, the creature range of one to two drops, deal with or answer just about anything. Um, there's, you know, it's, it's magic, it's wide open, you can do whatever you
2: want. I really would be curious to see the impact of Phantasmal Image. That would be something I would like to try.
1: I think I'd be, I'd be willing to try that as well. I, uh, I keep thinking that I want the fifth leader in Relic Order at some point, so maybe that's it.
2: That's another answer to Tinkerford or Steel as well.
1: Has anybody, uh, anybody been drinking recently? Chapel, have you been drinking?
2: Yeah, I was, uh, I'm was. i stuck in the drinking stage of preparation for recording the Serious Vintage podcast. Oh. Do you do that,
1: I thought I was the only one.
2: Yeah, it's, it's the only stage I know, so I just stay in it and just continue to repeat it. Right. It's the best stage, frankly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, why, why would I want to move on from that? I, I don't really know. You and I were talking about, you know, some... Holiday drinks as far as like Christmas coming up. Yeah, um, so you made a kind of a, a No eggnog.
1: Yeah, I, I didn't get to make the eggnog. I was, I was sort of planning on making eggnog and Making it homemade rather than just buying it out of a jug at the grocery store which has always been a little gross to me because it's <laughs> it, It's just a little gross. I really don't know how to describe it. But anyway, I didn't get around to do that but what I did try as we made, uh, my wife and I made a Mississippi bourbon punch, which was advertised as a wow. holiday beverage, and that was really good. What's in the bourbon punch besides bourbon? Uh, it's actually more muscadine wine based. Muscadine is a very grapey sort of grape. So if you're you know going to your local wine purveyor and you're looking for a, a muscadine wine, you're going to look for something like a muscato, which is made from muscadine grapes. Uh, we actually used a Catawba wine. Made it a little bit more Ohio, I guess. But yeah, it's a very, very sweet grapey wine. And then it, the rest of the, the punch has a little bit of, uh, has some bourbon, orange juice, cranberry juice, lime juice, and a little bit of lemon lime soda for sparkle. Uh, my wife and I made this bourbon punch the other night, and it was really good. It's sweet and fruity. I mean, you could definitely get yourself in trouble by drinking a lot of it, which is something I'd be looking forward to at the holidays, frankly. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds like fun. Yeah. Josh, what have you been drinking? Uh, well, I know
2: and I kind of talked about this too. Is you know, I most of the time probably just drink whiskey neat. So, like a good whiskey, I had Leopold Brothers Maryland style rye today, and I've also Leopold Brothers made a fernet. And so, fernet is typically like a very herbal, like bitter liqueur. But theirs is <clears throat> actually kind of a bitter liqueur, but a little bit more mint forward so it's I mean I've just been drinking a glass of that and it's kind of good it's pretty cold outside it's dark so a, a holiday drink that I've always wanted to make but I haven't yet it's probably gonna happen the next time it snows a lot uh, is a mulled wine just basically yeah a couple bottles of wine and you put it in a crock pot or a saucepan and there's a bunch of like herbs and spices so like orange peels lemon peels Sugar, cloves, cardamom, cinnamon, nutmeg, I mean, ginger. You can kind of put whatever and then just cook it for a while, and it smells awesome.
0: <laughs> I had mulled uh, wine last Christmas, and I can't remember who made it. It was really good. I don't think it was me,
1: although I remember that one year for Christmas, I gave someone a bottle of Glurg, which is G-L-O with an umlaut, G-G. Everything is better uh, with umlauts. That's yeah, it's Glörg. So uh, it's, uh, it was a, um, I believe, Swedish mulled wine, basically. Uh, it was all right. Kind of sweet. I've, probably if you're making your own, it tastes a little bit better
0: than something from a bottle. Yeah, but, and you can you, know, you can it. make it to taste, so. Yeah, I mean, if you don't like something,
2: leave it out. Right. It's kind of, you know, right. do whatever you want.
0: Yeah, sure.
1: I, I, I like mulled wine. I, I think that's a pretty good option when you're, you know, coming back home from getting the Christmas tree or on your way out to stay with your in-laws for a while, you can warm yourself up and cool yourself off with uh, a little malt wine. Take the edge Yeah, off. I mean, I,
2: I've, I've had it, but I, I've always just wanted to make my own, and I just haven't ever gotten around to doing that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's good stuff. I've, I've had other people make it. I don't think I've ever made it myself. So, so, Jeff, what do you prefer to drink at the holidays?
0: I don't know. More milkshakes? And milkshakes
1: aren't it. Yeah, I
0: mean, I'm... Milkshakes are kind of like eggnog. <laughs> eggnog. Yeah. I don't actually know what eggnog is. What makes eggnog eggnog? What is it?
1: All right, go ahead, Nat.
0: Uh, it's basically just eggs and
1: cream, like nutmeg and cinnamon and stuff. So
0: That sounds vile. What's the... <laughs> like, how many eggs go into... Well, I mean, you
1: know, it depends on how much eggnog you're making, but I know I saw one recipe yesterday that was probably for 12 servings and called for a dozen eggs. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, the idea is that you sort of warm the eggs just enough to maybe possibly
0: almost kill some so, of them. So meat you're meat. really just drinking runny scrambled egg mix. I yet. mean, you
1: actually just scramble them and you put them in a blender. Well, I mean, most of the recipes I saw asked you to uh, separate most of the eggs and then beat the yolks and put those into the mix and then heat that, whip it up a little bit, and then make sort of a foam out of the egg whites and stir that in so you have sort of a fluffy eggnog. <laughs> but, you know, it really it does sound kind of gross, and it sounds like a lot of work. But I mean, I looked up the recipe, too, because I know
2: when you and I were talking about this, I was like, okay, maybe I'll do
0: that. i Look at the recipe and I'm like,
2: yeah, I don't I don't really know if I want to make this.
0: It seems like something that if you actually made it or witnessed it being made, you would never drink it. Yeah,
1: I'm not I'm not sure what to say about it. Like it, I I'd be interested to try it when and I don't really want to drink it from the grocery store anymore. So
2: Yeah, it gets gets, gets a little creepy out of the little cardboard carton. Yeah, on the shelf.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> But, you know, the other option you have during the holidays, there's a lot of good breweries that put out holiday beers and seasonal Christmas ale or winter warmer, that sort of thing. I've had a few of those in the past couple of weeks that have been really good. I know a lot of people in Ohio will know about the Great Lakes Christmas Ale. It's well known for selling out almost immediately and being very difficult to find. Uh, I think that one's pretty good. They've had a uh, Actually, the Columbus Brewing Company put out a winter warmer this year that's similar to the Christmas Ale in that it's brewed with spices and has a little bit of a sort of an apple pie spice flavor. It's a little bit more cinnamon than the uh, Great Lakes Ale, and it's a little bit less sweet, which actually I appreciate. So uh, that one's really good. Lagunitas Brewing Company in California makes a beer called Brown Sugar, which is sort of like a sweeter IPA. And it's 9.9% alcohol, which that'll knock your socks off if you have more than one. <laughs> it sounds good. I'm going to try and find this. Yeah, that one's really good. Um, I've got a few of those. And actually, it's really good if you drop a shot of bourbon into it. But um, that one will really knock your socks
0: off. Yeah, that ramps up the alcohol um, just a bit. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Everybody um, loves a maker for Christmas.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. And then the last one I want to talk about uh, is actually from Spetzel Brewery, which makes Shiner beers. You may know, they're Shiner Bock. Uh, they have a Shiner Holiday Cheer, which is really unique as far as holiday beers go, because instead of being made with the apple pie spice flavors, it's brewed with peaches and pecans, which is, like I said, just really unique at this time of year. And uh, it's very good. It's very smooth. It was funny that you mentioned Shiner because
2: I was actually in Austin, Last weekend, and I had the Anchor Steam and Christmas beer. Anchor Steam is a oh, sure. brewery from uh, San Francisco, I believe, and right. they do a new Christmas beer every year, and it's kind of a lot different. Or you know, they they do different things. They don't do the same recipe every year, um, so oh, that okay. was kind of unique to, to drink a Christmas beer in shorts and a T-shirt sitting outside. <laughs>
1: Yeah, actually I like the uh, the Christmas beers. I think they're they're generally pretty good. I get uh, a little tired of them after a while, but uh, you yeah, know during the winter they're pretty tasty. I guess. That's... I mean they're usually pretty alcoholic, so I mean, you right there value. Right. I agree.
0: I'm always looking for the, the higher alcohol content per price. So, I guess it's just a good thing that they're only available part of the year. Yeah. Yeah, that's a Well, you've done it again. You've wasted another perfectly good hour listening to Serious Vintage. I'm Jeff Mose. I'm Nat Mose. And I'm Josh Chappell. And I hope you'll join us next time for more Serious Vintage. Take a little trip. Take a little trip.
1: I like that it sounds like you just fell out of your chair.